The reading is from Exodus chapter 34, verses 5 and 6, and Psalm 145, verses 3 to 9. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. Great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. His greatness no one can fathom. One generation commends your works to another. They tell of your mighty acts. They speak of the glorious splendor of your majesty. And I will meditate on your wonderful works. They celebrate your abundant goodness and joyfully sing of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and rich in love. The Lord is good to all. He has compassion on all he has made. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Naomi, and good evening. It's great to be with you. So many wonderful people in one room. And um, for those who were here last week, Tom kicked off a new series called God of the Ages, introducing these verses, some of which we've just heard from Exodus 34, and the importance, really, as he uh, teed it up, of what we think about when we think about God. Do check it out if you weren't able to be here. It's a fantastic introduction, this invitation into more from these words in Exodus uh, 34, which are kind of like a self-description list, really, from God, which the circles, um, the scriptures kind of circle back to again and again and again in referencing it, and one we heard there in the Psalms as well. They're words to take in, and meditate on and explore together more this mystery of God, the God we've been singing about. And so I'm just going to get straight into it, the top of this description list, as it were. And there's a pairing in the way that it's written. It says, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God. Compassionate and gracious, which go together and work with each other, really. And tonight, I'm going to start with compassion. I wonder what you think about when you hear the word compassion. As you might imagine, it's an incredibly rich word. And as we start now to put together some of this uh, visceral imagery that comes with it, my hope is that it's helpful for us in, in gaining fresh insight and fresh wonder. The word that we use, compassion, comes from the Latin, which is two words put together, literally means to suffer with. So entering into places of pain and brokenness, to go where it hurts. And similarly, in modern research, Brené Brown puts it really succinctly when she says, she talks about compassion as a practice based in the beauty and pain of shared humanity. It's a lovely way of putting it. And you could frame it something uh, like this, where sympathy is feeling for someone, perhaps a bit more kind of in the head in thought. Empathy then is more of a connection, a feeling within. And empathy helps us understand what someone is experiencing and to reflect that back, which is a really powerful tool then of compassion. Taking action in the face of something. So it's more that I am here with you. Sympathy may look in, but compassion goes in. And the Greek 
of the New Testament really helps with this as well. This is an incredible word, splanknesomai. Splanknesomai, it's an amazing word. But it comes from uh, the Greek for entrails, like kind of inner organs, which is quite strange. At first, it's it's been so moved by something that you actually feel it inside. Gut-wrenching is a phrase we use, isn't it? It's that gut-wrenching feeling where we're actually moved then to action. It's in the parable of the prodigal son. It's a um, a word that's attributed to Jesus having compassion a number of times. But in the prodigal son, which story you may well know, while he was still a long way off, the father saw him and was filled with compassion, filled with splanchnesomai, and ran and embraced him. Something you would never do in that context. And that's who God is. And then in the original Hebrew of our Exodus text that it was written in, the word um, that we get there actually comes for the word for womb, which again is kind of really interesting, but something that resonates deep within. The intimate means of sustaining and fostering life, a part that hurts. I read that almost as like this kind of divine tenderness, but also fierce life within. And as Tom hinted at last week, that's why this language helps us to think of of God's compassion as a way that a parent feels towards a child. And lots of our own examples of this have been tarnished and muddied, I know, and I know from my own parenting flaws as well, but even if it's just this kind of tiny glimpse of an expression of it, I still think it's a a meaningful uh, uh, explanation, comparison. You know, seeing uh, my wife Liz grow and nourish and hold and care for our kids. Celebrating first steps like it's an Olympic gold or kind of celebrating the next crayon drawing like it's kind of peak Monet. Um, But wanting nothing more than to see them thrive and fly in life. How much more then with the compassionate God not compassionate in theory, but in very name and nature and being and action. God of the ages, as we've called this, and we've been singing about past, present and future. In other words, this comes together like, if God is compassionate, then he's compassionate all of the time. The Psalms talk about God being full of compassion. That Psalm 145 that we just heard talks about God having compassion on all that he has made. It's remarkable. And so even from this brief kind of quick word study, if you like, when the list starts with God as compassionate, think of the depth of the language of the womb and motherly love, feeling something so powerfully that it resonates inside of you, moves you to action, to participate, even to suffer with And we start to get a little bit of a picture of what we're talking about. Does that make sense? Is that helpful as a kind of framer? It's how God feels about you. And as Tom said so well last week, we see that most clearly in Jesus. The embodiment of God's compassion in the flesh. Born in the fragility and vulnerability of a human womb. And in his life, 
death and resurrection, the way he went about things, we see this, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate God on display. Do you know God's compassion for you tonight? And does it have anything to do with how we live today anyway? To be honest, I would love to just finish the talk there and kind of land it. But then we get this incredibly inconvenient line from Jesus in Luke 6.36. He says this, Be compassionate then just as your Father is compassionate. It says in the NLT, merciful is another way. It's translated. So there's this kind of call then for us to lean in. And um, there are a number of studies I was looking at apparently, and I, you know, I think we can probably all sense it, suggesting that empathy and compassion are declining in society. And in the UK, I found this one particularly entertaining one. It found that the vast majority of people, vast majority of people said, describe themselves as, as compassionate primarily, but that other people are selfish. <laughs> I think it's something like 74% say, yeah, yeah, compassion is kind of one of my core values. But actually, everyone else is selfish. <laughs> and it's this kind of thing like, oh yeah, the problem is with other people. And we see that played out in life, don't we? Um, oh, how we need living signs of God's compassionate presence in the world today with all that's going on, the free and joyful expression, the overflow of encounter with the compassionate and gracious God. And those who were here about this time last year, if you remember the story to live in series where we kind of took a journey through scripture, this call that we had really to be image bearers, joining in God's purposes to make all things new, this kind of whole story arc of Scripture, people with a future hope, but very much living that out in the present. And the beautiful thing is that that future hope has already begun each time we show compassion. Each time people are welcomed. Each time those in need are clothed or the bullied are reminded of their true worth, like the kingdom of God is at hand when children experiencing abuse are set free, when oppression is overcome. It's almost like this future is pulled into the present. And as Tom said, maybe sometimes we get caught up with this picture of God kind of waiting for you to slip up, waiting to kind of point the finger. But actually it's it's is that the compassionate God is restoring and healing and making all things new. And would you want to be a part of that? So how do we be a part of that? And just to say, this doesn't always come that naturally to me. You know, I find this incredibly challenging as well. I'm I'm, I'm preaching to myself at this point. You're welcome to keep listening in if you want. It'll probably make it more enjoyable. But I'm, I'm preaching to myself as well. And I just want to offer this simple model and suggest that um, what gives compassion kind of texture and shape and substance is a flow of prayer and action, a flow of, of prayer and putting things into practice. And it's I'll put it like this, because one kind of fuels and compels the other. It's this kind of constant dynamic. Other words that could go with these, words we often use as well, a combination of formation and mission, contemplation and action, deep wells and roaring fires, as we've already heard tonight. 
And the priest and theologian Henri Nouwen, who's written some amazing uh, books, draws this connection, I think, really helpfully, so well, when he writes this. If prayer leads us into a deeper unity with the compassionate Christ, it will always give rise to concrete acts of service. And if concrete acts of service do indeed lead us to deeper solidarity with the poor and the hungry and the sick and the dying and the oppressed, they will always give rise to prayer. So it's that flow. And we see this in Jesus, don't we? Like often finding the quiet place, the secret place to pray, and then, um, and then the action. Interestingly, in the Gospels, when it talks about Jesus having compassion, it's usually this kind of precursor then to a moment, to, to something happening, like a healing and a forgiveness. The two, the being moved to compassion and being moved to action are inseparable, really, in the life of Jesus. Now, Henri Nouwen quote continues, like if he had a mic to drop at this point, he probably would. I love this. He says, in prayer, we meet Christ and in him all human suffering. And in service we meet people, and in them the suffering Christ. He's saying that as we spend time in prayer, we engage with the heart of Jesus. As we kind of soak that in and spend time in contemplation, or when we take more kind of active times of intercession and praying for specific things, we're engaging with the heart of Jesus, the one who is humble, took the very nature of a servant, no stranger to suffering, but also the one that says, Come to me, all you who are heavy burdened. And then in loving and serving and showing compassion in the world, we find Jesus present there. Think of his words, like very truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers or sisters, you did it for me. And in all of this, it's that presence of Jesus that is key. We don't do this in our own strength, but by the Spirit at work in our lives. We say, just as Moses had said, actually in chapter 33, before the passage we're looking at in Exodus, Moses has just said this to God, like, if your presence doesn't go with us, then don't send us up from here. I don't want to do this if your presence is not here with us. And in that way, compassion becomes a gift, like an overflow as well as a choice. It's the fruit of God's grace, made real by the Spirit and outworked in our lives outworked in community, like together, pointing to God's compassion in the world here in Southampton. And in this flow of prayer and practice centred on the presence of God, the Trinity, we're, like, we're invited into that. We're awoken to what's possible in our lives, that prayer and action work together. And I was kind of think about that combo and think about something that happened um, a number of years ago now. I was on a, on a trip um, to China with a small team and we, what we would do is we'd, we'd um, spend some time each morning kind of praying, seeking God and then acting on if anyone had a sense. And that particular day, someone had a sense of like, God, God was maybe leading us to go, um, I think the phrase was like, to the high places. I weren't quite sure what that meant. So then we um, just decided to look for the highest place near us and there was this mountain nearby. So we thought, let's try that. We went up to this mountain, kind of trekked up. And it was one of those, you know, when you're up somewhere and it's just this amazing vista, like the view of the city. And so we prayed, passionate prayers. We're kind of praying together. It all felt 
all good about ourselves. It was a good time. And then we started to wander back. And on our way back, we just got completely lost. And we're kind of wandering around in circles. Mandarin wasn't particularly up to scratch to ask for directions. And all of a sudden, we kind of hear this like saint, um, faint singing. And go, oh, what's that? And then I was like, sure, that sounds like a little, I sure that was a little hallelujah in there or something. It sounds a bit like, what? maybe they use the same four chords that we do in, in church. That's a, that's a joke, Nathan and Tom. Um, yeah, that's obviously a joke. What a remarkable worship team that we have here. Backtrack, backtrack, backtrack. But I was like, sure that sounds like worship. But basically what's happened is we've bumped into like a secret church meeting on the side of this mountain. Just the most incredible thing. And through kind of broken language and charades and we just had this amazing time together of praying with one another, encouraging one another. And then guess what? After that, we found our way like absolutely fine down the rest of the mountain and, and home. But it's just that sense. It really reminded me thinking about this talk. Like God's already at work. God's doing things and in this flow of the prayer and the participation, we get to join in with some of those things, be awoken to that possibility within us. And so we've looked at the compassion of God, like what it is, and our calling to compassion, to participate through prayer and practice rooted in the presence. And just as I kind of start to land, I, just want, I really want to kind of ground this like, as much as possible. And so two just really brief ways I see this impacting our, our everyday lives, how it's lived out. And that is that compassion, the compassionate life affects our relationship with time and our relationship with others. Our interaction, as it were, with, with time and with other people. And so with time, you know, as humanity, I think we've kind of been figure, trying to figure out like constraints of time and our relationship with time, how it works. If you think from, from sundials through to Siri, how to kind of maximise our time, seeing it, I think, sometimes as a bit of a squeezed commodity. And we have phrases, don't we, like not enough hours in the day or time is money. And I was reading, um, in many uh, monastic settings, there's a bell, apparently, that rings to signify when it's kind of time to move on to the next thing, the next task for the monks or the nuns. And it's not necessarily because they feel like it or because they're ready, but just because it's time. No, it's not because they don't have clocks or the ability to prioritise, but built into their rhythms of the day. They have this kind of on-purpose reminder that actually their time is not their own. Apparently, St. Benedict even had this line about like not like putting down the pen even before dotting the I or crossing the T when the bell goes, if you're writing. It's obviously a very different setting, context to most of us. But then I was thinking, like, I'm sure we have our own versions of... Uh, interruptions of the bell going, of reminding that time is not ours to hoard. Maybe the train that's delayed or the tricky colleague who needs some help or the housemate probably just thinks about themselves or the older parent who needs caring for or siblings, family life. All of these things, like these little moments for us to remember actually time is just not Asked to hoard. And when we think about compassion, what if interruptions are actually the moments 
What if the mundane is sometimes the main event? What if every moment is a gift in which to be fully present? And as we are, I think our our patience grows and our delight grows in step with the Spirit. Henri now and again, he talks about patience being the main discipline of compassion, which is a really interesting thought, actually from the same root in the Latin. And so this grows as we start to be um, present. And obviously we want to steward time well. Of course, we want to get things done and do things well. But sometimes I just wonder if we're hurried from kind of back-to-back time slot restrictions, moving us on from one event to the other. But actually to, to extend compassion then is, is, is to interrupt that and to enable others to, to take part in the fullness of God's timing, to honour other, other people with that slower pace sometimes of Jesus. So our relationship with time gets disrupted, but also our relationship with other people. And Judy Canato, an author and spiritual director, has this beautiful line. She puts it like this. Compassion pulls us out of ourselves and into the heart of another, placing us on holy ground where we instinctively take off our shoes and walk in reverence. That's beautiful imagery of actually that kind of dignity that we see in other people, like taking that care and delight in other people, taking our shoes off and walking in reverence. And so often life is marked, I think, I don't know if you find this, but even more and more in society, this sense of kind of competition, whether it's in the workplace or with um, uni grades or just the way we kind of seem to operate, being pitted against other people, there's these groups and these groups and others. But as we've seen, compassion moves us into action, to go in, to see the divine image in everyone. And I don't think we can do that without having a sense of then proximity. It's the final word. We discover the power of proximity, of being near to, in other words, of getting to know, of sitting with, of gradually taking down some of these competitive barriers that get put up. And when we do so, I think we learn things we wouldn't otherwise know. We grow in ways we wouldn't otherwise grow. You have your own examples in life of actually when you sit with someone, you look into their eyes, you share a meal with them, things change when you almost like something interrupts the schedule of your day, but actually that one thing that you had to be present for with that one person is really key. As I was kind of um, reflecting on this, I was reminded of a story. A while ago, uh, worked for an organisation who support Christians around the world facing persecution, and I, you know, could I knew some of the stories, I knew some of the stats, I could reel them off in in kind of different situations. But actually, sitting down with some of these people and hearing their stories just made all the difference. There was one time where I had lunch with this lady from uh, North Korea. She's like over seventy years old, five foot tall, but an absolute giant of the faith, to hear her story of her losing her husband, spending years in a concentration camp, some of the most inhumane conditions you can imagine, just really for sharing the same faith as us. 
And there was this really powerful moment while we were having lunch in the pub that we were having in, served the food with a kind of corn on the cob uh, as part of the meal. And she kind of looked at it and she basically asked if I wouldn't mind having her corn on the cob because in all the years that she was in these prison conditions, the only food that she had was kind of some form of um, corn. And it was almost like she just it was taking her back and she didn't want to face it. And so could I have her corn on the cob? And so that moment of like, she you know, passing in hands and looking in face, the proximity when we're with other people, not just in theory, not just behind screens, but with people, proximity hits different. And there are opportunities all around, I'm sure. We've heard even tonight about teams, you know, it's an amazing way to serve one another, to serve the wider community. I think about what's happening at the meeting place one of the most beautiful expressions, I think, of compassion is the banquets that they, that team sometimes put on. And these people are cooking together and eating together and celebrating together. Through the people we spend time with, through the organisations we can give to, in our daily interactions and interruptions, as I was saying, I think we can offer this renewed perspective of time and people through then patience and this proximity that starts to grow in our lives. Like all of us trying to live this stuff out, imagine. And it's good to have healthy boundaries, of course it is. It's, you know, and we have different capacities at different time of our lives and all of these things I'm not uh, suggesting otherwise, but I really think this is important. I'd go as far as saying we'll only know God so well and so deeply so far as we try and keep away from other people's suffering. And this came, I'll finish with this, this came to life again for me. This week I was watching a film called Just Mercy. Don't know if anybody's seen it. This movie based on the memoirs of someone called Brian Stevenson, who's a lawyer and a social justice activist. Um, You know, really powerful film. And as I was thinking about this theme of compassion... Um, it, it kind of stood out to me. Having graduated from Harvard, uh, this guy, Brian Stevenson, whilst on a work placement, actually, so you never, you know, literally a work placement from his studies, you never know uh, how, how our life experiences can shape the directions that we go. He experienced um, uh, prison inmates on death row um, in Alabama, often largely simply just down to the colour of their skin in that system and that society and the lack of representation and wrongful conviction, sometimes sent sentenced to death for crimes that they hadn't even been involved in. And Brian Stevens is an amazing man, inspired by faith, who has worked tirelessly, continues to do so for this cause through his Equal Justice Initiative. And there's a couple of lines that just like, um, as I say, jumped out at me. And the first is when his, a colleague of his called Eva, who he's worked with on this stuff, um, he's speaking, she's speaking to him after they've had this like, real big setback in a case. And she says, I've heard a lot of people say that it's not a good idea to get close to your clients. The distance is healthy. But working with you showed me that's not true. You chose to get close to every one of them. You love them like your own family. And when your family is hurting, you are hurting. Think of the words that Paul writes in Corinthians, when one part of the body suffers, all the body suffers. 
And then in a speech towards the end, Brian Stevenson makes, he says this, amazing words. I came out of law school with grand ideas in my mind about how to change the world. But Mr. Macmillan, who was one of the first kind of cases he took on, made me realise we can't change the world with only ideas in our minds. We need conviction in our hearts. This man taught me how to stay hopeful because I now know that hopelessness is the enemy of justice. Through this work, I've learned that each of us is more than the worst thing we've ever done. That the character of our nation isn't reflected in how we treat the rich and the privileged, but how we treat the poor, the disfavoured and the condemned. And he says this, if we can look at ourselves closely and honestly, then perhaps we all need some measure of unmerited grace. We all need some measure of unmerited grace. Grace from a God at the top of whose own self-description is compassion. Compassion that nurtures and nourishes and protects and resonates and reverberates inside, compelling action and solidarity. And the invitation for us, for you tonight, is to participate. I believe in this flow of prayer and practice, putting it into action. Uh, Patience and proximity, the overflow of this life, fueled and sustained by the presence of the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate God who is making all things new.